Uh, September 3rd, 1939, King George VI delivered a radio address to Great Britain. And that sounds like an ordinary enough event, but what made that event significant was the fact that the king from whom that speech over the radio came was not particularly enthusiastic about his station as king, nor about this requirement on him to use the, at that time, very modern technology to lead and address the nation in a speech over the radio. You see, you may know this already because of the 2011 film called The King's Speech, but King George VI had a rather prominent stutter. So he was not excited about giving this speech. But in fulfillment of his duty, he pressed on, and on that day in the late 1930s, he delivered a very important radio address. The scripture text before us today contains an address from a king as well, but a king of a much different sort. Yes, of course, I am talking about our King Jesus. As a church, we have spent over a year in Matthew's gospel looking through a series we're calling The Unexpected Kingdom, and we have seen over and over again King Jesus as the King of the Kingdom of God. But today, we are briefly hopping over to another gospel account, a much different one, that of John. And in this section of John's gospel, from which my mom just read a few minutes ago, we see a speech from the king of the universe, not the king of Britain, as important and significant as that is. King's Je- king Jesus' speech doesn't actually occur until the end of the passage that we've looked at together. And because of that, before we look into those words of King Jesus in detail, we need to build up to it, you might say, getting the whole scene together. If you enjoy reading books and watching movies like I do, perhaps you have experienced storytelling, whether fictional or historical, where an author or writer will switch back and forth in the book or in a film between viewpoints of the characters in that narrative. When done right, this can serve the reader or viewer well. Perhaps you've read books of this kind, again, whether in a fictional setting or even in a historical setting, switching from this character's perspective to this character's perspective to this character's perspective and so on. That's something of what John, the author of this gospel, is doing here. I believe we have before us in this passage from which my mom just read three perspectives. The first comes in verses 9 through 13, where we see the perspective of the crowds. The second, only briefly, in verse 16, is the perspective of the disciples. And then in verses 23 through 33, a third and final perspective, the perspective of King Jesus himself where we will see his words. And I'd like to look at this passage that reveals to us the first Palm Sunday through these three perspectives. Now, as we begin to zoom in on these three perspectives, so to speak, I'd like to suggest that we need to make sure that we take a look around in this text. What's going on in the passage? What is the setting of this passage? What's the situation in this story? 
All throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus had requested many times those to whom he ministered not to spread the word and draw attention to him. But, if you've read the Gospels, you know this to be true. Regardless of that, all throughout Jesus' ministry, word spread anyway. And that's something that has happened in the context of this passage before us. In verse 9, we see that a large crowd had learned that Jesus was there and came. So there's a large crowd gathering that wants, the text tells us, to see evidence of the miraculous resurrection that Jesus performed on his good friend Lazarus. Verses 10 and 11 tells us that the chief priests were aware of this too, but that knowledge led them to evil intent. They're actually interested in Lazarus for a very different reason. Right off the bat in this passage, we see something astonishing, which is that these Jewish leaders are willing to go so far as to break the law of Moses that they supposedly cared so much about and murder this man whom Jesus had raised from the dead because they wanted to squash the evidence of Jesus's divine power and subdue this growing swell of support and allegiance to Jesus that was evident to them. Then when we get to verses 12 and 13, we see the crowd almost frenzied, buzzing with excitement at the rumored arrival of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, to their city, Jerusalem, the place where Jewish life and religion and culture and worship was centered. And it's in verse 13, then, that these the first of our three perspectives, comes into focus. It says, verse 13 does, that they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The first perspective in this passage that reveals the first Palm Sunday to us is the perspective of the crowds. And their perspective was one of national pride. I wonder if you have ever been, as I have, to a parade on the 4th of July. Have you ever been to one of those? I have nostalgic memories of these as a kid going whether on the 4th of July or some other patriotic holiday. And if you're at a 4th of July parade and you look around, what are you certain to see plenty of? American flags. A beautiful sight, aren't they? For those of us who are Americans, especially. You'll see them on floats. You'll see them on the clothing of the bystanders or even in the hands of some of the bystanders. You'll see them on vehicles that are pulling the floats. You'll see them on the uniforms of the service men and women of various branches of the military or law enforcement as they walk through the parade. You'll see American flags everywhere, right? Well, palm branches in the hands of an average Jewish person at the time in which this text was taking place was something similar to a flag in the hands of an average American person. Two centuries before this event took place, the Maccabean revolt against the Syrians 
was celebrated with the waving of palm branches in accompaniment to the music, in celebration of this conquering of the Syrians, this revolt against the Syrians. And after that, as the temple was rededicated, palm branches were prominent again. Later, after these events in John 12, the Jewish insurgents against Rome later on actually developed their own coinage and used palm branches as the image on their coins. After that, I find this interesting, after Rome gained power again in a sort of mocking defiance of the Jews, they also used palm branches on their coins. And long before any of this stuff in our text, or shortly before it, or shortly after it, long before that, the Feast of Tabernacles in Leviticus 23, where we see the instructions for that, included the requirement of the presence of palm branches as an instrument of celebration of the presence of God with his people. And so you see that palm branches being present in this text is actually rather significant. They were being used at this arrival of this man into Jerusalem as a demonstration of their excitement and national pride. You know, the palm branches' presence in this text isn't the only thing that points to the Jews' national pride, though. You see what they say in verse 13? They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The majority of that verse is a quote from Psalm 118, which we started with today as Brian led us in our call to worship. Psalm 118 is a song. Perhaps you know that already, perhaps you don't. The Psalms are songs of the people of God. And Psalm 118 was a psalm that was sung with a lot of national pride. The temple choir would have sung Psalm 118 every morning during the Feast of Tabernacles. But Psalm 118 was also closely associated with the celebration of the Passover, which was instituted long before the Psalms were written at the Exodus. And so the original intent of Psalm 118 was this proclamation of blessing for those who were on their way to Jerusalem, those who came in the name of the Lord. But interestingly, the end of verse 13 shows a slight addition that tells us something about what these Jewish people were thinking when they quoted Psalm 118. Do you see? They say, they put, in, in my ESV, I've got a comma after the word Lord, and then this phrase, even the king of Israel. That phrase is not in Psalm 118. This welcoming of the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, scholars will tell you that Psalm 118 had already been understood by the Jews to have connotations of messianic prophecy. That this blessing that Psalm 118 proclaims on the one who comes in the name of the Lord was ultimately an expression of blessing for the Davidic king of Israel, which would be fulfilled by the promised Messiah. 
And the crowds, in verse 13, are evidently identifying this and acknowledging it, identifying Jesus as that king for whom they had been waiting. And so here's some more evidence of the fact that the crowd's perspective was one of national pride. They were excited about the arrival of their nation's king. I wonder if maybe this was something akin to what it could have been like for many of our early American forefathers during the time of the Revolutionary War as our, nation, uh, our nation's identity was beginning to take shape. The attitude, the feeling, the, the sort of atmosphere in those early Americans being one that could have been described in, the, in a phrase such as, I can't wait to see what's going to happen next. We're finally going to be free. The great ancient historian Josephus gives us some information about a later Jewish Passover celebration that may shed some light on how big this large crowd actually was. It could have been very, very loud. Later on, in A.D. 70, there was a Jewish Passover celebration And Josephus reports a crowd of 2.7 million people at that Jewish Passover. This passage records an event several decades earlier, but, but that later event may give us an idea, at least of the possibility, of the massive scale of the crowd at this event. Even if it was much less than 2.7 million, it still was a large crowd. I mean, can you imagine our city, Brighton, has approximately 42,000 residents as at, it last, at last counting at the beginning of this year. 42,000. And if the Passover celebration gathering on the first Palm Sunday was only 1 million, which is far less than 2.7 million, that's Brighton times 42. That's a lot of people. Imagine if it was even up getting close to the two million or two and a half million or more. And of course, not all of them could all fit in the exact same spot to watch the entrance into the city. That's far too big a crowd for that. But my point is that when verse 9 says that it was a large crowd, we're not just talking like 500 people or even 1,000 people, probably. Rather, we're talking about this enormous crowd buzzing with national Jewish pride because they had heard about this man who had raised Lazarus from the dead and word was spreading that this was perhaps that Messiah that they had been waiting for and he had come. And of course, we know that national pride properly placed can be a very good virtue. And the Jewish people in this instance had a brand of national pride that I'm afraid led them to some naive expectations. It might not have been altogether sinful, but we certainly don't get the impression that they understood things as clearly as they should have or as clearly as we now see them today. In verse 13, calling Jesus the king of Israel is all well and good, but the rest of the context of Scripture shows that their expectations of this King Jesus were, on the whole, misplaced. They, we see, wanted a Messiah that would overthrow Rome, remove their oppression, and restore Israel to its place of prominence. 
And there's clues to this in the text here. We see Jesus, instead of mounting a great white horse and affirming their expectations, calling for a donkey in verse 14 to ride on it. And then John, the author, tells us in verse 15 that this was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9's prophecy that Israel's king would be one of humility, one even of gentleness, indeed one of justice and might, but not to the exclusion of that humility. And so in other words, what Jesus was doing in getting this donkey was in effect tamping down some of the nationalistic fervor that was swelling. It seems from the text that the people were eager to quote Psalm 118 in anticipation of their king, but may have forgotten about Zechariah 9. And Jesus here is pointing to Zechariah 9 as a reminder of a fuller picture of what his arrival would be like, one of salvation through sacrifice, through humility, even through death. And not at that moment through the conquering, national pride-fueled mind of advancement of Israel as a nation. And so the crowds had national pride that led them to naive, naive expectations, but we also see that the religious leaders had a different kind of national pride that led them to nefarious machinations. Machinations, machinations. mentioned this briefly already, but I do want to make sure we see it. These chief priests, these scribes, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all had it out for Jesus because he was upsetting their status quo. He was intruding on their traditions. He was undermining their authority and pointing to his. And John tells us that the chief priests are so upset at Jesus' ministry, so frustrated by the fact that Lazarus has been raised that they are literally hatching a murderous plot to get rid of him. You can actually see their exasperation in verse 19 as well when the Pharisees, a different group than the chief priests, but the Pharisees saying to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Essentially, what John is doing here is pointing out a bit of irony that despite their best efforts at stifling Jesus' influence, Jesus' following was growing. Praise God for that. John is probably actually using a bit of a double meaning here, both that there are so many people in terms of number that the expression hyperbolically used, the whole world, was kind of fitting, and also perhaps that the people here, in another sense, represented the whole world in terms of there being many different ethnicities who had gathered in that nearby region to see this man. And of course, John, we know, also likes to use the phrase the world in his book, such as John 3.16, where it tells us that God so loved the world that Jesus came to save them. And so we see the religious leaders getting worked up as usual, they don't like what Jesus' arrival is doing, and they are nefariously putting some things together. Now, whereas the crowds 
had some mistakenly placed national pride in their perspective on the first Palm Sunday. The second perspective that we see in this passage is that of the disciples. And their perspective was one of limited understanding. Verse 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. The disciples of Jesus had seen and had heard a great many new and perplexing things in their time with Jesus. And here was another thing that, according to John, they did not grasp right away because their perspective was one of limited understanding. They didn't have all the information. Jesus hadn't been risen. In other words, the plan of God hadn't been fully executed yet. Right there, like we just saw at the beginning of verse 16, it says that they didn't understand these things at first. But later, John says they did understand. Some of you know that just over a week ago, Kate and I were in Minnesota for a singing gig. Shortly after arriving at the place of our, uh, the place we were staying for a couple of nights at our gracious host's home, Kate let out an audible and frightened gasp. The reason for that was that she realized that she did not have her phone with her, and she was afraid that she might have left it at the Minneapolis airport or even on the plane. And I imagine some of you have had something similar to that feeling before. Pretty incredible how these little supercomputers can get us so nervous sometimes. It was a horrible feeling for her. And in fact, you can have that feeling about your keys. You can have that feeling about your wallet. You can have it about several different things. But only a minute or so later, Kate remembered that she had been using her phone in our conductor's car when he picked us up from the airport and drove us to the place where we were staying. And so it turned out that all it needed was a, a quick text from me to that conductor, and he came and brought it back to us. I wonder if that's something like what the disciples experienced when, as John says in verse 16 in the second half, that they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Kind of like putting together mental puzzle pieces after some kind of a perplexing situation leaves you confused and befuddled. And once you remember or realize some additional and important information, it all makes sense. That's what happened to the disciples. Eventually, John tells us, after Jesus was glorified, after his resurrection, they remembered the words of Zechariah 9. They realized that that applied to Jesus, and the events of the first Palm Sunday made more sense to them. You know, many of us have multiple copies of the scriptures in our Various different versions and translations available to us today. And as I mentioned, these little supercomputers that we carry around in our pockets and are so afraid to leave in an, in an airplane have the scriptures in them as well. And if you don't, you can download an app and have it like that. But the disciples of Jesus had no such thing. 
The New Testament hadn't even been really written at the events of the first Palm Sunday. But even the Old Testament wasn't something that the disciples of Jesus would have carried around with them. It was something that they looked at in the synagogue. It was something that they memorized. And so what must it have been like for the disciples when they remembered these things, as John tells us in verse 16? I wonder if one of them realized it first and began to tell everybody, hey, do you know what I just realized? Or if perhaps they were talking about it together over a meal, or perhaps one of them was reciting the prophecy of Zechariah in an altogether different context, and then things clicked for them. Perhaps a kind of eureka moment, you might say, or a moment like Kate had when she realized her phone was in our conductor's car. It's fascinating to consider. But the fact remains that the disciples' perspective on the first Palm Sunday was one of limited understanding. They didn't get it. Jesus was riding into Jerusalem. He was fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, and they didn't realize it. Many of the Jews were pretty sure that they were putting two and two together regarding the arrival of the king and his correlation to Psalm 118, but they failed to see and to remember and to realize another important aspect of the king's mission and his ministry. That this phase, at the time of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, of his mission and his ministry was going to be characterized by gentleness and humility and the redemption of his people from sin. Not at that moment the conquering of foreign nations and Israel's restoration to earthly prominence. And it wasn't until after the passion, after the resurrection, after Jesus was glorified, that the disciples put two and two together about that. And I can't help but think, isn't that so often true of all who follow Jesus? That we think we understand, but we don't. That a misplaced focus on one aspect of the kingdom of God and ministry in it sometimes may undermine our ability to see equally important ones. The reality is where you and I live today is this phase that we sometimes like to call the already and not yet phase where King Jesus has come. He has conquered sin at the cross. He has risen from the dead. But there is a time coming later when he will arrive again and everything bad will be put away. Every sin will be gone forever and all the bad things will come untrue, I think is how C.S. Lewis put it. That comes later. We're in this stage of already Christ has conquered sin and not yet has this world been made new. So right now we do live in the time where that humility, where that sacrifice, where that unimpressiveness to the world, where that grace, that mercy, that kindness and gentleness is a very present part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus because he is calling more people to himself. And so... I think we, too, must be cautious to not inordinately focus 
on, for example, the conquering side of King Jesus to the exclusion of the gentle side of King Jesus. And of course, we shouldn't flip those either. But in the context of this passage, it's something I thought about. And friends, even generally, we must beware forgetting that our perspective is limited to. We do not have all the information crystal clear in our minds just yet. We do have a lot more information than the disciples did. Praise God for the phase of redemptive history in which we live. But we still have a lot of questions, don't we? Don't you? A lot of things that don't have perfect, neat, black and white solutions. A lot of questions yet to be answered. A lot of waiting left for us to do. But my dear, beloved Redeemer family, all of our questions will be answered one day because of the saving work that Jesus was on His way to do on the first Palm Sunday, such that you and I, in a different stage of redemptive history, will perhaps remember certain things that we knew once through the Scriptures and put two and two together in a different way than we had before. In this passage on the first Palm Sunday, Jesus was embarking on what Christians traditionally refer to as Holy Week. This week coming before us, this week. Cleansing the temple on Monday, overturning the tables there and reprimanding the people in it. Teaching in that temple on Tuesday. The subject of their dark, of the Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests, dark murder conspiracy on Wednesday the Last Supper and the foot washing of His disciples on Thursday, His horrible crucifixion on Friday, laying dead and buried on Saturday, and then on Sunday, raised by His Father. And because of what the first Palm Sunday kicked off, sinners like you and me, saints like you and me, are redeemed through repentance and faith in Christ. And with all of our sin dealt with and redemption accomplished, all our perplexedness, all our questions, all our suffering and our waiting and our sorrowing has the hope of an end through the good, wise, and powerful reign of this King Jesus. And that is the subject of the third perspective in John's passage before us on this first Palm Sunday. In verses 20 through 22, John tells us that some Greeks were on their way to worship during the Passover and they requested to see Jesus. And that word to see actually can be literally translated to have an interview with Jesus. And so Jesus hears about this, of these God-fearing foreigners who want to talk to him, and that spurs on his next words. And it's here that we come to the moment where the king gives his speech. King George VI's speech was met with great anticipation by his British subjects because of his stuttering disability, and King Jesus' speech is met with great anticipation by us this morning because his words are the very words of God. Listen to verses 23 and following again. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Then the crowd that stood there and heard, and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I don't think these are the kinds of words that you or I might expect from a great conquering king intent on overthrowing a nation. But it is in these words that we see the third perspective of these characters in John's historical account of the first Palm Sunday, the perspective of the king, a perspective of redemptive intentions. His words in verse 23 start off in a kingly enough fashion. He actually says, my time has come to be glorified. He uses the phrase, the son of man here, which is his favorite self-designation. And then he says, the hour, and he's referring when he uses that phrase to what had up to that moment been something that was going to happen in the future. But now that hour had come. And so what he's saying here may have led the disciples to go, oh, okay, here we go. This is what we've been waiting for. Get ready, Rome. You're going down. But as it turned out, the hour that Jesus was talking about was not the hour of a coronation or the hour of an announcement of an intent to revolt. Interesting, it might have been easy enough for him to do with the large number of people at his side. Rather, the hour Jesus was talking about in which he was about to be glorified was an hour of death. That hour doesn't, isn't to be taken literally in terms of what we think of as 60 minutes, but rather the time had come. And thus he says in verse 27, now my soul is troubled. This is fascinating to think about, isn't it? When we think of great heroes, whether our modern mythology of like comic book superheroes or even ancient mythology of Greek or Norse gods or whatever, you don't see these people say, now my soul is troubled at the hour of storming a castle or on the threshold of victory. And these words in verse 27 probably remind you, if you've read through the scriptures before, of what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, my soul is troubled, which is a lot like what he says in the Garden and he also refers to the possibility of asking his father to save him from this time and then submitting to what was coming for him. That happened in the Garden of Gethsemane as well. We'll take a few minutes to consider that in our Good Friday service this week. 
this hour at the end of verse 27 is the same hour that he spoke of in verse 23. An hour that in his humanity he would have dreaded. Verse 32, skipping forward, tells us that he was going to be glorified in the sense that he spoke of in verse 23 because he says in verse 32 that he would be lifted up. But he says, I will be lifted up in verse 32. And then John tells us in verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So this was not a lifting up onto a throne for all the people of Jerusalem to see and sing his praises like a king. Rather, we see that Christ was going to die. He was not galloping in on a mighty steed with a sword raised and a trumpet blaring. He was riding in meekly and humbly. He was on his way to offer himself up as a sacrifice and to die to pay sin's penalty for us. That was the redemptive intention of our king. That's why he talked about seeds dying and bearing fruit in verse 24. It's what he had talked about all throughout his earthly ministry. In verse 25, he's on about it again, isn't he? Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is the same stuff that he'd been saying all throughout his ministry. All this stuff about losing life with the expectation of gaining it, about following his example of laying down his life and serving his father. And so the redemptive intentions that I see here are, I believe, fivefold. The first intention of Jesus here was the intention to release his own life to gain eternal glory. While the lifting up that Jesus spoke of in this passage was indeed a reference to his being about to be lifted up on the cross, literally hanging there such that his killers and the bystanders would literally have to raise their heads to look up to where he was. There is also a sense, and this is very important, that Jesus was referring to the reality that he was going to be lifted up spiritually, being raised to the status of, we could say, Lord Most High, as we sang at the beginning of our service this morning. In fact, you don't have to turn there. I have it on the screen for you. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus' redemptive intentions on the first Palm Sunday included his intention to release his own life in order to gain eternal glory. His second intention revealed in his words here was to glorify his father. Over and over again, we see Jesus constantly expressing a desire to glorify and obey and serve his father. And that's what he expresses again in his conversation with his father in verse 28. Father, 
glorify your name. And then the father responding that he would. The third intention stated in this text is the intention to judge the world. You see that in the beginning of verse 31. Now is the judgment of the world. You might think that that failed because the world doesn't seem very judged. The world has not been wiped out as it deserves. But Jesus isn't talking about an end of the world kind of judgment here. He's talking about how the coming holy week before him would necessarily force the issue with people so that they would be caused to have to make a choice between following and embracing him or rejecting him. And in effect, that would serve as a kind of judgment where the hearts of those who rejected him would be exposed as evil, self-righteous, prideful, while those who humble themselves and embrace him in submission would be rewarded with a relationship with him and eternal life in the age to come. So that third intention was to judge the world. The fourth was to defeat Satan. That's in the second part of verse 31. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That, of course, is a reference to the devil, to the evil one, to the tempter, to the accuser, the one who seems to be ruling this world because of the presence of sin and because of the foothold that he has in so many of the people that God created. But the redemptive intentions of Jesus on this first Palm Sunday included the plan to cast him out. In other words, what would appear to be a great victory for Satan, the murder of God's son on a Roman cross, turned out to be the greatest of victories over Satan. When Jesus accomplished the atonement of all who would believe in him and overcame Satan's power to call in the debt of those who had earned the wages of sin, which the Apostle Paul tells us is death. That's why we sing that second stanza we sang just a few minutes ago of the hymn before the throne of God above. That's why we can sing, when Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Jesus, who made an end of all my sin. And because that sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Free from the evil one, free from sin, free from the powers of this world. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on Jesus and pardon me. Amen. Man, we need more amens in this church. You know, everyone who was so excited that the king of Israel was entering Jerusalem, everyone who was looking forward to him setting them free, had it right in a sense, didn't they? But it was freedom of a different sort that he had come to bring. Freedom from the powers of this world. Freedom from the evil one. Freedom from sin. And that's in the fifth intention of Christ in this passage, to draw many people to himself. The redemptive intentions 
of Jesus are found here in verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Hallelujah. In the end, what Jesus was headed for was the redemption of a countless number of souls who had previously been enslaved by sin, imprisoned by the devil's power, restricted from a loving and glorious relationship with God, destined for an eternity in hell under the judgment of God as a just and righteous requirement for sin. What Jesus was headed for what he intended from his perspective on that first Palm Sunday was to draw people from every corner of this globe to himself. That's what all people means here. It doesn't mean that, sadly, that everyone in human history will be saved. We know that's not true. But it does mean that all peoples will be represented in his presence forever. That was Jesus' intention. And in a later writing of this same John, the last book of the Bible called Revelation, not Revelations, Revelation. Same with Psalms, by the way. The book is Psalms. I'm sorry, a little tangent. The book is the Psalms, but each one of them is a psalm. Anyway, side note. The book Revelation shows us this magnificent picture of the future that shows that the king's redemptive intention of drawing many people to himself is going to be accomplished. I have it on the screen for you too. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That day is coming, brothers and sisters. This was the king's perspective. These were his redemptive intentions. To lose his life in order to gain glory. To glorify his father. To judge the world. To defeat Satan. And to draw many to himself. Praise God for these redemptive intentions of our king. You know, when I was in college, I spent two summers in a choir group that went to various churches in Europe singing and preaching and services that were designed to draw believers from those churches' respective communities to hear an American choir, a novelty in their community, sing, and then we would share the gospel with them. And one of the songs that we had in our rotation of songs was the old African-American spiritual Ride on, King Jesus. And that song came to my mind as I was studying this passage this week. This song has a rich and fascinating history. The refrain, if you've not heard it before, simply is this. Ride on, King Jesus. No man can hinder me. The analysis of that song and its origins shows that its theme is that in the power of Jesus, no matter the suffering such as those that those African slaves endured, following King Jesus as he rides on ahead of us will lead us to victory. In fact, one of the stanzas says, King Jesus rides a milk-white horse 
and then no man can hinder me, and it continues on. That's clearly got some of Revelation in mind. There's a picture in Revelation of Jesus riding a white horse as a conquering king. But, you know, I actually spent a little bit of time, couldn't help myself, went down the rabbit hole studying the background of this song, did a little bit of reading on it, and apparently the original intent of this song also very much had Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday in mind. And I thought when I read that, how fitting. How fitting for Christians to keep both in view. In our place, on this side of Jesus' earthly ministry, that it is both true that Jesus rode into Jerusalem triumphantly, such that we say, ride on, King Jesus. On his way to conquer sin, on his way to conquer death, on his way to free us, and also that a day is coming when he will ride a milk-white horse as the spiritual sings. It's with that knowledge of what he has already done for us that we follow him even when what he's called us to includes pain, includes suffering, includes sorrow. Our sorrow and suffering and pain is going to be a whole lot different than those who wrote this song originally, but we do uh, suffer and experience pain and suffering in this life. And like those who wrote right on King Jesus, we can say, right on King Jesus, we follow you. No one can hinder us as we do. All the while keeping in mind that just as he rode humbly on a donkey in the first Palm Sunday, he is coming again to bring a full and final end to all the suffering, all the sorrow, all the sin once and for all. And so that, may that be the cry of our hearts this first Palm Sunday. Ride on, King Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Jesus our Savior, Holy Spirit of God, our triune God, we praise you. We thank you. We honor and worship you because of what you have done for us because of King Jesus. There are many trials, many troubles, many tribulations in our lives. There are many sorrows, there is much suffering, and there is still a lot of sin that takes place in our lives and in this world. And so help us to rest in the reign of our King Jesus. May this reminder on 2023's Palm Sunday of what took place on the first Palm Sunday serve us as we seek to follow our King as He rides on before us, knowing that He has ridden into the city where He would lay down His life, knowing that He rides on before us even as we follow Him today and that He will ride on again one day in a very different sense, coming to free and save and restore this world once and for all in every way. Help us this day and every day to worship and follow You in light of this truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.
We often have a time of quiet meditation and prayer, but today is a day for great celebration, as will be the case next week. So let's stand and get ready to sing praise to our God, even 